Let's join in prayer. We come, Heavenly Father, to you this morning with grateful thanks for your word. We thanks for this wonderful gospel of Matthew, for the places we've been with Jesus so far and the places we will go. And this morning as we journey with him up into a mountain and we see something of what happened there, please enable us to grasp what we need to learn so that we'll also be equipped and encouraged to face the consequences of following him even to death. Please bless your word to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning our text does take us to the top of a mountain with Jesus. And if you think about it, you'll agree that in the last few chapters, Matthew, the gospel writer, has taken us many places. We started out with the disciples in Jerusalem and then headed north and east to the regions of Galilee and surrounds, then the regions beyond the Jordan before heading west again to the regions of Tyre and Sidon, then south to Caesarea Philippi and now north again to the mountain in this text, probably, possibly Mount Hermon. And it's there on this mountain that this scene of our text unfolds before our eyes. Jesus was transfigured and his disciples and saw and heard something of his glory. Now in this event, like all others, there is much to learn about the life and the ministry of Jesus, especially what this event meant to him, what it meant to his disciples and what it means now to us. But before all that, let's put the text into its context and we'll see again that this event is one more in a long line of events in which Jesus has been making clear the purpose of his impending death to these 12 disciples. They had not yet begun to grasp this fact and even less the full significance of it. One of the reasons for their failure to grasp it is, as we find out from Luke's Gospel, that though Jesus had brought the inner circle with him up onto the mountain to pray, Peter, James and John, these men fairly quickly headed off to the land of Nod and almost missed it all. It won't be the last time they will do it, will it? That night will come in Gethsemane when these same men will act according to this same pattern, sleeping when they should have been awake and praying. But in saying that, I fear that more than one finger points back at me, also maybe at you. But here they were, up there on the mountain with Jesus, when waking from sleep, they beheld something impressed upon their eyes and ears that they would never forget. 
And that's true for us too, because Matthew not only recorded what happened here, but we still have the record of it right here. So let's consider this event in the light of these headings that follow. First, this event confirmed an unwelcome message. Now don't get me wrong here. The message of the gospel, Christ crucified on behalf of sinners, is always and will always be a welcome message. But having heard Jesus speak about his death and rejecting it as a possibility, Peter found out the hard way that perhaps his opinions maybe were best kept to himself. See, Matthew in his placement of these events put this mountaintop experience right after Peter's confession of faith made on behalf of the whole group of the disciples when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It was a marvellous moment for Peter, which was quickly followed up by that disastrous moment when he said to Jesus that his suffering and death would never be. Peter didn't connect together Jesus being the Messiah on the one hand and his impending suffering and death on the other actually went hand in hand. He didn't grasp that. He did not want to be a follower of a Messiah who was defeated. No doubt the rest of the twelve didn't want to either. They didn't sign up to be on the losing side. They were hoping for the victory ride that Jesus would share with them in his triumph. That's why he found it not so very difficult to deny Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest on the night of his trial three times before a servant girl. He simply did not have this straight in his head that Jesus would suffer. And so on waking here up on this mountain and seeing Jesus glorified, transfigured as he was and seeing something of the strains of victory before they would come to pass, Peter must have thought, well, this is it. This Messiah never dies. Look at him now. I'm right after all. Jesus is wrong. But poor Peter, poor sleepy Peter. Had he been awake, he would have known that this was not the case at all. Luke's account of this event says that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The Greek word for departure is, of course, the word you know well, Exodus. And this fact recorded by Luke makes this Old Testament, New Testament connection so strong. What Moses did in terms of deliverance for the people of God would be that which Jesus would do and he would do it by dying, by laying down his life. Are you a bit like Peter? Are you not so keen in being a suffering follower of a suffering saviour? You might be on the one hand quite ready to welcome him as he 
comes in glory, power and majesty to judge sin and to receive his people to himself, but not so keen about what happens in between. That is, being called upon to suffer because of our identification with a saviour that the world hates. Peter probably later wished he'd never said what he said about making booths and tents for Jesus and Moses and Elijah so they could stay. Not only did he not know what he was talking about, but there was nothing that was going to be permanent about Moses and Elijah's visit and nothing permanent about Jesus' time on earth either. So as we hear the words of God the Father saying from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, they were not just words for Peter, James and John to attend to, but for Jesus too. He had heard those words at the beginning of his earthly ministry. Now as he faces the culmination of that ministry, he hears them again and these words will carry him forward to the cross. These words will sustain Jesus in the unspeakable agony and suffering that he must face. And to an extent they would sustain his disciples when they would be called upon to face scorn and hatred and rejection and ridicule. And because Jesus was strengthened by these words and then these three three disciples also, so it must be that we disciples today are also strengthened by these words. And the unflinching and unwavering testimony and commitment of Jesus and his disciples to that truth. But for now it's an unwelcome message. As Jesus went on to make clear in that conversation that followed in verse 12 when he said, So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Yes, this Messiah will be glorified. They got a glimpse of that. But before that, there's the suffering and, of course, the cross. Second, we learn here that the transfiguration event confirmed an unfinished story. There's another thing we see happening in this narrative and that's this, that there's more to the story. And so we note that Peter in his distracted state of mind suggests that James and John and he should get about the business of building shelters for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Luke makes the comment that Moses and Elijah are about to leave off their conversation with Jesus and Peter wanted to hold on to that moment. He was maybe distracted, certainly terrified, says Matthew. Mark says that Peter did not even know what he was saying that they were all so terrified by what they saw. But he didn't want to let go of what was happening just the same. He had never seen anything like it before. I could understand that. You could understand that. Who would want to leave a glimpse of the glory of heaven? Who of us would want that to just slip away? Wouldn't we be trying to hold on to it? Wouldn't we be trying to grasp it and say, let's make this permanent? Don't let this moment go. 
This event shows us a reality beyond what we see and it's glorious beyond all words as Jesus lifted up just one small corner of the veil, so to speak, and his three disciples saw his unspeakable glory. Bishop Ryle said back in the 1860s, it's good for us to have the coming glory of Christ and his people deeply impressed upon our minds. We are sadly apt to forget it. There are few visible indications of it in the world, so let us beware of giving way to doubts in this matter. Let us silence such doubts by reading the history of the transfiguration. There is laid up for Jesus and all who believe in him such glory as the heart of man has never conceived. It's not only promised, but part of it has actually been seen by three competent witnesses, Peter, James and John. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there and seen that glory? His glory, if you saw something of it today, like now, if suddenly that glory appeared, that would be such an encouragement, don't you think? Faith giving way to sight. Wouldn't being and living as a believer be so much easier? Maybe so, but isn't that what this happens here every time we gather for worship on the Lord's Day? Isn't this our, opp- our opportunity to stand on tiptoe and peer over the world, the wall of this world into the glory and the wonder of what is to come? Isn't this our opportunity to turn away from the world and be refreshed in the knowledge that the whole world will see the glory that Peter, James and John just got a glimpse of? Our worship from week to week is meant to lift our eyes from the horizontal to the heavenly, even from being with one another to joining in with the worship going on right now around the throne of grace. Do you think on those things? That's what the transfiguration tells us. There's a glory that we don't see. There's a glory that's beyond compare beyond what we can see. It's what Jesus has won for us. It's what Jesus invites us into. It's what he has prepared for us. Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God, these words, Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want, the world we were made for, a world of glory and perfection, a world not marred by sin, the world we all want is coming. And that's true, but that's not the world as we see it at the moment. The disciples only had this one moment basking in the glory they saw. There would not be any other moments for them like this again. And we do not get to live on the mountain of transfiguration, do we? But we take from it that sense of glory and let that which we see in the text but not now with our eyes shape the work we do down here in the valley in some way. And what really may be not more than a few minutes' time 
probably not even an hour's time, and Jesus will be leading these three disciples down from the mountaintop, back down into the valley, and once there they will face head on the realities of life in a fallen world. There's a demon to cast out. And that reminds them of the reality of daily spiritual warfare. Their friends are frantic because their best efforts have been insufficient. They're faced with the need to understand that prayer is a work and that much prayer is required, much labour in prayer is required to do the work they're called to do. And there's always nagging and persistent unbelief always forcing us to ask the question, how can there be such glory to come when all we see now are grim and hard realities that pushes thoughts of the mountaintop far, far away so that what happened on the mountain seems like a dream. But you see, that's the point of the story, isn't it? Life in the world as we live it every day is not the whole story. There's more to come. Third, this transfiguration event confirmed an unmatched saviour. The narrative shows us something about the uniqueness of Jesus while Peter is dashing about in his attempt to make tents for the heavenly guests. To Peter at this moment, there is no distinction. All three persons he sees are glorious. All three deserve honour. It's the engulfing bright cloud, the visible demonstration of the presence of God and the voice from the cloud, the very voice of God that stopped Peter in his tracks and reduces all three to terror. The message from God shows what's wrong with Peter's thinking. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. God doesn't say anything about Moses and Elijah. He never even mentions them. That's not to say that they weren't there or a kind of a mirage. No, they were there having come to serve Jesus in a specific way sent by the Father Now how they were made known to the disciples is not clear. Perhaps God gave some sign or token by which they were recognised. And that's where we realise that the text purpose is not about answering our questions or revealing that information to us. But what we can be sure about that there was no mistake made by God in having these two men there. See, Jesus did not come into the world as Messiah apart from the Old Testament, but because of the Old Testament. And if there's anything about the Old Testament, we know it's this, that both the law and the prophets testify to Jesus. So it's more than appropriate that the human mediator of the law, Moses, and the most prominent of the prophets, Elijah, should serve Jesus at this time. Peter's confusion is profound and must be pointed out. The three glorious ones he sees, he sees as equals, but they are not. There's only one son. All who preceded him served him. All who preceded him spoke his word. Again from J.C. Ryle, Moses and Elijah were great men in their day, but in nature, dignity and office, 
They were far below Christ. He was the root. They were the branches. He was the master. They were the servants. Let, let's honour Moses and the prophets as holy men, but if we would be saved, we must take Christ alone for our master and glory only in him. Let me ask you this question. Is Jesus unique to you? Do you have any other one in whom you are hoping for forgiveness of your sins? If so, let's make it plain. Your hope is vain. The uniqueness of Christ is that he is the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the only one who's done the work that God requires and he calls us to trust in him only. And don't fool yourself. If your hope is not in him, then your hope is not hope at all, but mere wishful thinking or superstition. So let's ask as we begin to close, what did Jesus intend as the purpose of this experience in the life of these three disciples? Well, we can say that Jesus intended it to strengthen their faith. But if it's only about strengthening the disciples' faith, why not bring all 12 disciples to the top of the mountain? Why limit the blessing to three? Why three out of 12? And even then, surely if Peter, James and John were soon sleeping again in the garden, then this event seemed to have little or no impact upon their faith. Maybe so. But look at this in terms of the bigger picture as at least Peter and John both profited from the experience. Listen to John, chapter 1, verse 14. He declares, decades later, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen to Peter, as we heard this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice, born from heaven, for we were there with him on the holy mountain. So when they saw Jesus' majesty, and when they heard later Jesus say in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I will lay it down of my own accord, this sight and these words would have had a huge impression upon these men, having seen him up on the mountain like this and then the next time he was up high was on a cross. The very opposite of this. The mountain of glory to the cross of shame. Now these two events could come only together by one thing, that his death was voluntary. 
because no one could kill this one whose radiance outshone the sun. That's at what that's at least what Peter and John relate to us. The Lord of glory, boundless and glorious in his majesty. He could only be crucified for sinners if he offered himself up for them. No wonder we hear God the Father say to us this morning, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Let's go to the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God, as we come to you, we acknowledge the wonder of your word. This scene before us, where Jesus was transfigured and became more glorious than the sun. What a scene it was for these men. And what a scene it is for us. As we consider what we will see one day when we think of what is to come, the glory that rests upon the head of the Lord Jesus Christ is a glory that will far outstrip anything we've seen before. But we don't see that glory now. We have as an image instead of a crucified Saviour one who bore the sins of many, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And so we wait in hope, in strong hope, that we will see that glory again. So help us as we think on this, not just to think highly of Jesus, but also to worship him, to acknowledge him. Thank you that for him there was glory, but yet the cross was to come. And for us there's glory, but death must come. So enable us, we pray, to walk with you, to follow your steps carefully, for in them we see ours. And grant us the grace, Lord, that we might follow and follow well. We ask this in his wonderful name. Amen.